Welcome back along to a Freed Way Thinker edition of the Freed Thinker podcast. I think I'm putting a lot more of these out. The commute really has uh, really has helped my output here. <laughs> uh, so I hope you all are enjoying these uh, shorter uh, freeway reflections as we go. Uh, today I want to talk a little bit about Romans 9. Um, if that makes me a cage stage Calvinist because I want to talk about Romans 9, then so be it. Uh, it's come up a lot lately since the uh, James White John Cranman dialogue on the unbelievable show and uh, as someone who talks about Calvinism and reform soteriology and all those kind of issues on the show and on my uh, group page and all that for quite some time now this this topic comes up a lot now what I want to do is not necessarily an exegetical treatment of Romans 9 I think that's been done to death that happens, you know, James White does that. Pretty much any any Calvinist worth their salt uh, does that. That's fine. What I want to do is a little bit of a rhetorical analysis, a discourse analysis on what is happening uh, in Paul's argument as he goes through. Part of this is because I'm driving, um, so I don't have any of my lexical tools in front of me. I can't read any texts while I'm driving um, because, you know, I want to live to post this episode. Uh, and for those of you who know me know that I have a terrible memory for for specific detailed things. So I, I don't I, I just have a terrible memory when it comes to uh, what what uh, what Greek term underlines what uh, what word and what tense and how how it was parsed in that specific instance and and chain. I just I don't remember those types of details. I remember uh, for this type of off the cuff. Uh, reflection. I remember concepts and arguments and and, uh, rhetorical flow and things like that. So that's what I want to look at. So I'm going to give a really basic outline of a reformed understanding of uh, of Romans 9 set in the context of of, uh, coming out of Romans 8. Um, For the Calvinist listening, I'm not going to touch on everything. I'm not going to touch on every point. I'm not going verse by verse. Again, I don't have everything in front of me. I'm just going to give broad stroke treatment of what it is and then and then give some some objections to why I think the provisionist um, understanding, the corporate election, the judicial hardening of the Jews, and so on and so forth, is not a good understanding of uh, of Romans eight and nine. Okay, so Romans eight and nine. Rome, in Romans eight, Paul is giving encouragement to the believers. Right? He's, he's encouraging them uh, to pray for everyone led by the Spirit. The Spirit, if we don't know who to pray for, the Spirit will lead us into it. Uh, in, in that exhortation talking about us is when we get to the golden chain of redemption where, where Paul tells us um, that, that God uh, foreknows um, uh, the, those he, who he foreknow. He also called those he called. He justified those he justified. Uh, he also glorified and that whole uh, golden chain of redemption and flowing out of that 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 is the foundation for our hope um, that that goes into well if God is for us who can be against us uh, if God foreknows us calls us justifies us glor- sanctifies us glorifies us then who who can be against us if, if God does all that and and nothing uh, neither height nor depth nor uh, anything else in all of creation and that that whole section follows it's a it's a encouragement to the believers. Romans 9, unlike the dispensationalists, is not a parenthetical. It, it, it is not a switching of gears and, and changing into a new topic. What it is, is Paul 
saying, okay, I have a mixed audience. I have I have Jews and Gentiles. Well, I've basically just argued that the hope of the believer is set on the foreknowledge and the predetermined election of God for those that he has called to himself, those that he has chosen. And that is the foundation of our hope. Okay, well, great. If that applies to the Gentiles, the Jewish question is going to naturally follow. The Jewish Christian is going to be sitting there and thinking, well, wait a second. Wasn't it wasn't it national Israel? Wasn't it the, wasn't it the the people of Israel, the children the, biologically of Abraham, whom God has called? But we have unbelieving Jewish friends. Are you saying that they that they're that they're part of, because they were called by God that they're part of this justified group? Um, so there is flowers, and them are not wrong to say that there is suddenly a question now about the Jews. That clearly is part of the question. Paul then is is seeking to answer that that uh, that question, right? It's not a parenthetical. It's a it's a, he's doing he's dealing with an application or an implication of what he's just said within the context of the mixed body of the New Testament church of Jews and Gentiles, and he goes through and he basically argues, look, salvation whom 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 are God's elect and and uh, whom whom the remnant are has always been at God's prerogative. Sure, God called the nation to himself. God called Abraham. But so what? God, ha- God has cho- had chosen uh, uh, Isaac over Ishmael. He had chosen Jacob over Esau so that his divine purpose might, uh, uh, you know, his divine prerogative and mercy might stand. Uh, from that, he, he anticipates an objection. Well, that's, well, that's not, that's that's not fair, right? How is that? How is that just to choose one child uh, over another? They're twins. Before either of them have got, done good or bad, you're going to choose one of them for your purposes. Before they've done anything right or wrong, that's that. How is that just? How is that fair? Paul then uh, goes on to argue. Well, look, it, it's it's so we see this throughout the entire Old Testament history. We see this with Moses. We see this with the calling of the nation of Israel that God raised up Pharaoh. Why? So that his his purpose and his wrath might be displayed, so that the objects of mercy might experience his mercy. And it's not based on our our will or our work or our desire. It's based on uh, God who shows mercy. Then he anticipates another objection. Well, how is that fair? Right? If 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 you can, if, if someone cannot resist the will of God, how does God still find them at fault? How does they find them? How does he find them morally culpable? And then Paul answers, "Who are you, O man? Shall the potter say, shall the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way?" Right? He he's saying, "Look, it, it's always been this way." It's always been this way throughout the entire Old Testament. If you think that that justification, that salvation came by genetics, you've missed the boat on the Old Testament. It's always been this way. It's always been this way since Abraham, since Isaac and Jacob, since Moses and Pharaoh. It's always been this way, and it's never been unjust. And and the clay doesn't have the prerogative to look back and say, why why are you finding me at fault? I couldn't resist your will. Why am why am I at fault? And Paul and Paul answers and says. You know what? What if God, desiring to show his his uh, his mercy, fashioned his objects of wrath, and he did so, right? So on and so forth. Um, 
So the 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 Calvinist position, the Reformed position, rightly has this logical flow of the argument that he's making, that Paul is making. If he's making a deterministic argument that, that it is by God's sovereign decree of election in individual salvation, this is not just about, about groups, in individual salvation, this is how can you hold the individual accountable? How is it fair? How is it, how is it just to choose Jacob over Esau? Individual salvation. How is that fair? How is that just? If God is determined, if you cannot resist his will, if, if Pharaoh cannot resist his will, how can he be held accountable for his actions? Right? How is he morally culpable? Okay. That's the basic outline of a reformed treatment of, of Romans 9. It follows the argument to a T. <clears throat> the libertarian, the incompatibilist, the latent flowers, the provisionists, have to come along and, and say, Paul isn't teaching divine determinism. Paul isn't teaching unconditional election unto salvation. He's not talking about individual salvation. They can't have that. Right? So what does he do? He, you know, uh, Flowers comes along and says, okay, well, back in Romans 8, when it's talking about those whom he has foreknown, he, he's talking about, you know, the Old Testament saints, Right? He's, t- he's talking about he's talking about the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Moses, those whom he foreknew, he called, and those whom he called, uh, he justified. Right, so on and so forth. Okay. The problem there is that well, that's just not what the context is. He's talking about us and we. He's talking about the Roman Christians, Jew and Gentile. Right. The 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 before and after um, is is dealing with the believer. Is dealing with the Christian. It's dealing with our hope. Our hope is that God has has foreknown us, has called us, has justified us, uh, will sanctify and glorify us. And Paul can say that it's such a sure thing that it's in that it's in the heiress, it's in the past tense. Right? That that's his that's his argument. Right? For 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 the the provisionist position to come along and say, well, okay, well, it's just talking about Old Testament saints. Not only would that be a grinding, screeching halt, shifting of gears. You can hear the gears, you know, grinding in the background as Paul, for one paragraph, one short couple of sentences, is changing the entire subject without any reference to the change of subject, right? Which which is uncharacteristic of Paul. Normally when he's talking about a specific group, when he's shifting focus to Abraham, he'll mention, you know, and consider, you know, our father Abraham. He'll mention the shift. This is without any shift whatsoever, Right, and then when he's done talking about it, he grinds gears, reverses, and goes back to the believer. Right, without any notification of a shift of subject whatsoever. Right, not only is that wildly uncharacteristic of Paul, there's no textual reason to think that. There's no there's no discourse analytical reason to think that. There's no reason. I mean, there's just no reason to think that. Except he needs that for his theology to work. He needs that to deny Calvinism. Even if it were true, let, let's let's assume it for the sake of argument. Even if it's true, Paul is making that argument, if he is, I don't think he is, but Paul would be making that argument to give warrant to the assurance of the believer that God has always done it this way. God has always 
foreknown. If our hope is analogous to what God has done in the past, and if in the past God foreknew Abraham and he for and he called him specifically and he justified him specifically, well, by implication, you still get you 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 still get individual election. You still get we're still dealing with individual justification. You're not dealing with it as a group. So. Even so, so, even if we grant Flowers' bad argument, his 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 terrible eisegesis, it still doesn't get him what he wants, and it still doesn't undermine Calvinism. So, moving on, he then wants to say, well, then then when you get into to Romans nine, you're dealing with um, corporate election, you're dealing with the hardening of Jews, you're not dealing with um, you're not dealing with individual unconditional election, individual salvation. Um, and Paul is not presenting divine determinism here, right? It's it, 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 you know Esau did bad things, Pharaoh did bad things, right? Pharaoh, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That's that's the argument. Now, I mean, looking back at Exodus, we can see well God had actually determined to harden Pharaoh's heart, and in this passage, God says that He raised him up for that very purpose. Right? So by the analogy of faith, the clearer interprets the less clear. The, the didactic interprets the narrative. Uh, God saying, I raised up Pharaoh <laughs> to harden him, to have him harden and me harden. That's, that's why I put him there. I, I determined that that, is, that was for my purpose. That was so that I could show mercy on my people and I- exhibit my wrath on Pharaoh. Right? But besides that, if Paul isn't giving a deterministic argument, if if he is defending incompatibilism and libertarian freedom, none of the objections follow. Right? Think about it. In what possible world? Right? So libertarian freedom. I think libertarian freedom is false. Right? I think it's actually incoherent. I don't think it's. I don't think libertarian freedom is is a even coherent possibility with any, any possible world. But one thing that libertarian freedom has going for is is it, and, and, and I'll grant them this, it is it, it is eminently fair, right? We we act and God judges us based on our actions, right? Or or based on you know our action of trusting in Christ, and then we're and then we're judged based on we get the righteousness of Christ and so on and so forth. But his his just his his actions, uh, his judgment is because we acted first, right? Uh, God, God responds to our activity. We sin, and so therefore God judges us. It's eminently fair. No one says that's a wait a second. That's unfair, right? Think of the two objections in Romans nine from Paul's interlocutor. Paul's interlocutor the first time when when Paul says, well, well, it, it's always been by God's calling. He he chose before the before the twins had done anything good or bad. He chose Jacob over Esau. Well, wait a second. The, object, the, the interlocutor says and objects. Is, is, isn't that unjust? Isn't that unjust for God to choose someone from from before uh, before they had done good or bad to, to make his, his you know isn't that isn't that unjust to, to basically determine to to judge someone to set someone up to in, in, into you know, apart from the called people of God before they've done anything good or bad? That's never, 
that, that is not an objection to libertarian freedom. That is not an implication of libertarian freedom. That's not an application of libertarian freedom. Remember, Paul's, Paul's interlocutor, it's Paul. It's an imaginary interlocutor. He's saying, look, I'm imagining that these this group of people that I'm writing to, when I say this, that they're going to understand this implication of what I'm saying. They're going to take the application too far, right? If sin results in grace, well, shouldn't we sin more so that grace abounds? Well, they understand Paul's teaching that sin, uh, that, that, that grace overcomes sin. They're just distorting the application of it. But it's not a flat out, wait a second, you guys just don't even, you don't even understand conceptually what I'm saying. Let me start over. Right? He's not talking to a real person that's misrepresenting his view. Right? That, that's straw manning his view. He's saying, look, you, if you understand my view right, lightly, how do you avoid this, this implication of it or this perceived application of it? So when, when the interlocutor comes in and says, it, that's unjust, Paul doesn't say, well, wait a second. It, it's, not, it's not unjust because, because you know, Esau, Esau, look at the bad things that Esau did. He gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. And God, God judged him for it. How is it, how is it unjust for God to judge him based on his his actions? Right. That's not that's not how Paul responds. Paul responds to the unjust claim by saying, "Okay, well, let me give you another example to show that it's always been by God's by God's decree for whom He has mercy, based on Him and not based on 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 the man who wills." Pharaoh. I, I, I raised up Pharaoh. I put him in that place. He could he could not do otherwise. He couldn't resist my he couldn't resist the will of God. I put him there for the purpose of doing my bidding, <laughs> of doing what I determined him to do, so that I could show mercy on my people and show wrath uh, against an ungodly king and sh- and display my glory. And the objection comes. Well, wait a second, Paul. Remember, this is Paul imagining someone coming to a, a, a bad implication, not a bad misrepresentation. How, how is it fair if you can't resist the will of God for God to hold you accountable? Why does he still find fault if we can't disobey? This, this is literally, almost word for word, the objection that Calvinism and determinism gets from people like Leighton Flowers. If you are determined, if you cannot resist the will of God, if you cannot do otherwise, then you can't be held morally accountable. It's unfair if God holds you morally accountable when you can't do otherwise. That is, if you cannot resist the will of God, why does he still find fault? That is precisely the objection that the, the Reformed compatibilist gets, that the Calvinist gets. Is that ever the objection? to libertarian freedom? Wait a second, Paul. If you can't if you can't resist the will of God, Leighton Flowers, then why does why does God still find fault? Leighton Flowers would just say, "Well, you can resist the will of God. You 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 can and do resist. That's that's provisionism. That's Flowers' view. That's what he's trying to say. Paul is arguing. Right? You 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 can resist the will of God. God, God is punishing Pharaoh. He hardened Pharaoh because, you know, Pharaoh hardened his heart first. Well, where does the where does the objection? But how did, how does he resist the will? Where does that come from in the passage? 
It doesn't. It and, and Paul's answer isn't again. It's his own. It's his own. He's imagining his own interlocutor. Um, it would be bizarre for him to be imagining someone who completely 180 degrees misrepresents the basic principle of his argument. It's someone who takes the principle and applies it incorrectly. Right? And his response isn't, well, wait a second, they can resist the will. He could have easily said, you know, it's not unjust because Pharaoh hardened himself first. Instead, he says, who are you, a man, to, to, to you know, talk back to God? Shall, shall the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? He's giving the deterministic answer. He's saying, look, God, God has determined the clay. It's his prerogative. The clay can't, the clay can't look back to the potter and say, um, why, why, why have you made me as an object for wrath? That's not fair. Right? That, that just is, that, that is never an objection that comes up from, from, from flowers and, and, and other views like that. And they'll say things like, oh, well, it's, the interlocutor at this point is an unbelieving Jew. Well, I, I mean, first of all, the, the interlocutor in Romans is never an unbelieving Jew. Maybe Jewish, a, a Jewish Christian. Maybe. If you think that, that Paul saying, how do you, a Jew, in Romans 2, sets up who his interlocutor is through the rest of Romans, then maybe it's a Jew. But if you think that Paul is merely addressing his Jewish readers at that point, just like he addresses his, his Gentile readers at Romans 11, then it doesn't follow that the interlocutor, the rest of the, the letter, is Jewish. Right? It can just be, it can be anyone. You don't, have to be a, you don't have to be Jewish to think, okay, well, if, if sin means that grace abounds, then should I sin more to get more grace? That's not a specifically Jewish thing. There, there, there's, there's nothing in these questions. If you don't take Romans 2 as the indicator of who the future interlocutor will be, there's nothing that tells us the ethnic identity of the interlocutor. Right? I, I particularly don't think that the interlocutor... I, I don't think it matters if the interlocutor is a, a Jew or a Gentile. And I don't think Romans 2 tells us the identity of who the interlocutor is. I know that there are a lot of scholars that disagree about this. But, but even if the, the interlocutor is... Is Jewish, right? There, there's nothing that tells us he's an unbelieving Jew, right? But, th- but this will be positive. Well, he's an unbelieving Jew. That, that's why you get this unfair objection. I don't even understand the reasoning for that. To be completely honest, it, it doesn't follow. I, I don't see how that follows. And think about it. In what possible scenario, if if Paul was giving a libertarian provisionist understanding of, of corporate hardening, of God hardening the Jews, uh, uh, sorry, judicial hardening, uh, of, of hardening the Jews due to their rebellion, like he hardened Pharaoh due to his rebellion on their view, that God is only hardening in response to the Jews hardening themselves, that God only hardened Pharaoh in response to Pharaoh hardening himself. What <laughs> what Judaizing Jew is going to say, Paul, wait a second, hold up. How is it fair? Let's let's bracket off the, the fact that, that who can resist his will has nothing to do with, you know, if Paul is arguing that, then, then, then they are actually, they harden themselves. That is them resisting his will. Let's bracket that off for a second. But in what sense is the objection from, from a, a Judaizing Jew ever going to be how is it fair 
that God is judging in response a pagan, evil, Gentile king who persecuted, enslaved, and was murderous towards the people of uh, the people of Abraham, the children, uh, the children of Abraham. How would that, in a, how would that rhetorically, if you're thinking about the rhetorical flow of the argument, if Paul means what the provisionist says he means, the objection of the interlocutor makes absolutely no sense. The 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 unjust, the unfair objections completely break the rhetorical flow, the, the argument that Paul is actually making. So not only is it at discord with, with the setup coming out of Romans 8 about individual election, about individual salvation. Again, we're dealing with, with the ones that God has mercy and the ones who God has wrath. He gives individual persons. He, he talks about Jacob and Esau. He talks about Pharaoh. He talks about us being made like the potter and the clay. He talks about our justification. This is in the context of individual salvation, right? Are there corporate elements of it? Sure. Do, it, it, it's like, do we, do, you know, every every two years, do we vote on Congress? Yes, we vote in a Congress. But how do we do it? By voting in individual persons. The 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 elect just is is the the sum total of the individuals that are elect. Right. So not only it, 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 it is the provisionist position incorrect. On, on the theological context of what's happening. Not only are they incorrect about, about who the interlocutor is, not only are they incorrect about the purpose and the theology of what Paul is saying, but they're also just incorrect on the, on the basic rhetorical flow of the argument. It's simple. Think about it for a second. If Paul was making the argument that the provisionists say that he's making, do the objections even make sense? And the answer, I think, is clearly and demonstrably no. Well, thanks again for joining me. God bless and drive safe.